Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello and welcome to this special edition of Geek Town Radio. Um, I'm away on holiday this week, so not wanting to leave you without uh, anything to listen to, uh, we've got this interview with composer and um, musician Charlie Clouser. He is uh, a member of Nine Inch Nails, or ex-member of Nine Inch Nails. He's um, also the guy that writes the music for Wayward Pines, which is currently airing on Fox over here. Um, he wrote the title theme for American Horror Story. Um, he wrote the music for the Saw films, uh, Resident Evil Extinction, a number of other movies. Uh, he's worked with all sorts of people from like Marilyn Manson, White Zombie, obviously Nine Inch Nails. He was responsible for introducing the theremin of all things to, to Nine Inch Nails, which uh, you look it up if you don't know what that instrument is but it's kind of this crazy electric instrument um the interview was recorded um a few weeks back when we had that middle of that heat wave um and ironically it was raining in la at the time uh, which is where charlie is um so we we ended up starting having a conversation about the weather obviously because we're english or i'm english um and uh, then got into a discussion about top gear before we got onto the actual show because it turns out he's an enormous top gear fan um we did eventually get on to talking about wayward pines and his uh, career in nine inch nails um so here it is here's the interview um there should be another interview show next week and then we should be back to our regular um broadcasting after that um here's charlie hope you enjoy it <laughs> Hi, Charlie. Hello. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm okay, thank you. Very nice to talk to you today. Um, where are you? I am in Topanga, which is just outside Los Angeles, sort of halfway between Santa Monica and Malibu. Uh, and it's up in the mountains, isn't it? Somewhere. Yeah. yeah you're you're by um, Dan Litch and all those guys. Uh, Nate Barr is up there as well. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Part of the uh, composer junta, I believe they're, they're referred to. <laughs> Exactly, which uh, which is uh, how I met one of my favorite composers, um, Cliff Martinez. Ah, cool. Yes. Now that Cliff's, Cliff's not somebody I've spoken to. I've, I, I seem to have done most of the uh, the guys up there, but <laughs> but uh, no, I've not spoken to Cliff yet. So I have to try and arrange that. We are having a rare gray day, which I'm sure won't sound at all exciting, <laughs> but. Uh, you know, 364 and a half days of 72 degree <laughs> weather and sunshine gets, it actually gets old after a while. So like anytime we have an overcast day or it's like a three raindrops fall from the sky, we're like, oh, yay, let's go sit on the porch and enjoy this 15 minute rain. Yeah, well, rain's something you need over there right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not yeah. actually raining, but it, you know, yeah. We're yeah. like, it looks like it might rain. Oh, fantastic! <laughs> can't, can't, I'm, I'm staying home from work. You know, it's, it's so funny if it if it rains for ten minutes here, cars are upside down in the ditch. <laughs> I and, know, you know it's insane. Helicopters overhead. It's a national disaster. <laughs> 
if we get 10 minutes of rain. So. The pr- problem is we, we have exactly the opposite problem in that, like, it, today it's been ridiculously hot. It's been like 97 over here today. It's absolutely, we've, we've obviously, like, the earth has obviously switched somewhere and we've stolen all your heat. Because uh, <laughs> it's, it's just, it, it's insane. But Britain can't cope with it because, like, nowhere has air conditioning. <laughs> right. So, so you're just like... So we're all also, dying of heat. Is it also, like, hot and muggy and humid? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It it did it did actually rain for about ten minutes, which helped. But um, but but yeah, the rest of the day it's just been unbelievably hot over here, um, and we, we seem to be in a mini heat wave right now. But yeah, it's it's just crazy. So yeah, it sounds like we've stolen all of your heat today. Uh, well, you know, the important question is how is the populace of the UK taking? The announcement of Chris Evans. <laughs> uh, uh, mixed reaction. Mixed reaction. I, I, I kind of. He, he seems to have. Um, it, it seems to have gone down reasonably okay. I, I mean, we've said before. I, I, I can't. He do, you know, he does a, a radio show over here as well. He does a breakfast yeah, show. And, and I've seen him when he's been a guest on Top Gear, and like when he's lent his zillion dollar Ferraris to James May and everything. Yeah. And you know, okay, good on him for that, but. You know, yeah. that's, that's, it's, it's, I can't even think of a comparable cultural upheaval in America. Like, I, you know, yeah. I, there's yeah. no equivalent to that. Well, I mean, it's, it's going to be really interesting because, um, you know, the, I mean, really the problem the BBC had is, is this, he's kind of the only person that could have done that job. Um, right. because he's he's the only person they kind of trust because uh, he has the BBC's trust these days, which he didn't like 10 years ago. But, uh, but you know, he, he's the only person they can really trust to do it, and he's the only person that's got that's that crazy about cars and has the producing experience. So, so there really right. wasn't anybody else that was appropriate for it. And I, I really don't like his breakfast show because he's so perky first thing in the morning. And, right. it, and it's like no, nobody should be that awake first thing in the morning. I'm not a morning person. <laughs> I mean, as you know, as you run it through in your mind, you think, okay, who could it possibly be? You think, okay, Chris Evans, fine, I get that, but who can they team him with? And like, yeah. I, only, I can only think of like, okay, Rowan Atkinson and J.K. Yeah, 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 yeah. Those that would be a, an interesting combination. Um, I mean, J.K. is he's he's very hateable. He's eminently hateable. <laughs> yeah, but. When you see him, like whenever, you know, the, the 50 times he's been on Top Gear to do the start and reasonably place car, it, he's so enthusiastic and like I, I want to hate him. It's my duty to hate him. <laughs> but I somehow sort of can't, you know, yeah. although I remember that that dust up when he, you know, didn't he punch out a paparazzi? When yes. He had, yeah, I think he did. When he had one of his zillion dollar cars, you know, out at the clubs and they wanted pictures and he yeah. made a, made an ass of himself but so there's that there's there's that redeeming quality <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i guess i mean that they, they've they've still not kind of announced who, who uh chris is going to be working with so that's going to be right. an interesting team see that it comes up but i mean the the bigger problem they've got is is that the uh the three original guys um clarkson hammond and may are supposed to be doing uh apparently have definitely got another show in production um so and they've got andy willman yeah who, is, you know, after digging into it a bit, it seems like a lot of what we love about Top Gear is, you know, it's yeah. not just the three guys. Yeah. I, I want to think that Willman has something to do with it, whether it's the writing or his the, – that, that he's somehow responsible for the look and feel beyond just the writing. Yeah. You know? Yeah, well, I mean, it's there's there's Wilman and Clarkson really invented that format for that show. So, right. you and know. they go back to like elementary school, don't they? Yeah, yeah, they're very old friends. So, so it sort of made sense when he said he was leaving to go and do something else. And they, right. they threw piles. You knew there was another show coming. You know, you knew they yeah. were doing something else because they they threw piles of money at at, uh, at May and Hammond to stay. And, yeah. and they said no. So well, you know that whoever is behind the the next chapter for them, whether it's Netflix or Sky or ITV or whatever, yeah. you know they were just waiting in the wings with yeah. their with their checkbooks out and their pens at the ready. Yeah, to, I mean you know, to basically say 
money is not the pr- name your price yeah. and we'll make it happen you know yeah yeah the um uh the, i i think it will probably end up being netflix because the the problem you've got with a show like top gear is they're never afraid to give an opinion on whether they think the cast sucks or not right uh, and you can't really do that if you're on a channel that's got advertising on it yeah i mean it's it's only possible on bbc or netflix or yeah. some other sub- subscription-based thing yeah. so i guess that kind of rules out Sky and ITV because they're at the mercy of broadcast like everywhere else in the world. Yeah, yeah. So I I suspect it will be Netflix. Um, you know, they they seem to be the people that have probably got the pockets to be able to do it, and it would be a huge win for them as well. So yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to that turning up. Uh, that should be good fun. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I am kind of looking forward to seeing what happens with Top Gear as well. Whether whether they can keep it going. Um, with a yeah. new team, but uh, I mean, they certainly have the resources, and I, you know, I've actually been a fan of Fifth Gear also, despite right. its reputation as the you know as the the poor cousin. Yeah, it's like it's it's. I don't. I never minded Tiff Needle, although everybody kind of talks shit on him. But yeah. like, you know, I enjoy his. So there's there's probably room for more than one. Yeah. Yeah. No. Totally. Yeah. Um. I mean, there's uh, there's another show uh, that um, the actor Phil Glenister does as well, um, which is is kind of a, a car show, which I think runs on Channel Five over here. Um, he he's got a car show, so he's been one of the names that's been in the frame for uh, for for being one of the co-presenters. But uh, I suspect they'll probably go for people that are are in the car industry rather than just fans. Um, right, right. So so well, yeah. um, American Top Gear is. A dismal thing. <laughs> yeah, know? I've heard they that. Could, they could, and they could have, you know, made because because they kind of got three guys who are probably okay for it, but it should have been like Jay Leno, Adam Carolla, and it, yeah. it should have just been a different roundup of guys. Yeah, because those, those three, they're, you know, they, God bless them, they try their best, but yeah. Yeah. there's something lacking in the the. <clears throat> Their level of comfort on screen. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think it's so about getting that chemistry right between yeah. between the presenters, and and they did it so well um, between three guys that really shouldn't really like each other that much, but they but you know they do. Well, that's so. sort of part of that's part of what makes it work. Is just yeah. that, you know, there's endless fuel for them for any two to gang up on the third, which yeah. is. That's the kind of the magic of of the original three is just yeah. my, you know one of my favorite lines of all times is just when they're giving James May one point and they say and your your house is just full of pictures of the Queen <laughs> and I just thought man that's so yeah. perfect and so eminently British and so great in so many ways you know. Have you managed to see any of the uh, the final episode yet? No, they haven't. It, it hasn't aired over here. And uh, okay. you know, of late, BBC's been so good at clamping down on on illegal streams of it. You, know, you used to yeah. be able to go on to like finalgear.com or streetfire.net or some of these other sort of quasi-piratey, uh, you know, motoring video clip websites yeah. and grab it. I didn't even want to download. I just want to watch the damn thing, even at terrible resolution. Yeah. And BBC, uh, you know, in the past year or two, they've been really somehow they've got their web sleuths on the case and they've clamped down so effectively on so many of those yeah. outlets that uh, I haven't been able to scrounge it up yet. Yeah, that's that's annoying. There, there is a uh, there's a great visual gag um, in, in the back of, of that because they. They roped in Hammond and May to do like some studio linking bits because it's basically two films. Right. Um, so they rope Hammond and May in to do these these kind of little linking bits, but it's in the Top Gear studio, but it's empty. There's no audience. Um, oh. So it's 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 really kind of odd and and slightly weird. But there's there's a great bit where they've they've obviously been told they can't reference the incident. They're not to talk about Clarks, and you know they're sort of talking right. around it. And the camera pans across, and they've actually put this giant elephant model in the back of the room. So there is literally a giant elephant in the room. <laughs> Just awesome. one of the, my favorite gag. I, I thought that was superb. 
so yeah, it's um, it, it's definitely one to look forward to. The last two films are, are, are quite good fun. So um, you might be able to uh, if you can get a DNS changer um, and uh, like a DNS switcher, you could probably right. get the iPlayer, get it off the the BBC right. iPlayer, do it that way. That's probably the easiest thing to do. But uh, yeah. Um, we should probably talk about you a bit, <laughs> rather than just talking. Yeah, rather than Clarkson. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, you're you're on because because you're uh, you're currently scoring uh, uh, Wayward Pines. Yep. Um, which which is is the show you're currently doing. But um, just going back a bit, um, how did you first? When did you first start getting interested in music? Well, I had you know, played a variety of instruments since about the age of six. And, you know, like many kids, you take, you know, you take guitar lessons for a year and then you never practice and you get bored and you switch to another instrument. Yeah. So by the time I was like probably nine or 10 years old, I had already tried and given up at piano and guitar and clarinet and settled on drums, which for you know a nine-year-old that's perfect let me hit something <laughs> yeah absolutely that's and so i kind of stuck with that f- through high school and had bad bands i mean this was you know in the 70s so had right. bad bands where we'd play like pat benatar covers and <laughs> you know things like that and uh then drums lead then the drum machines started appearing on the scene right around uh, when i was in the final years of high school yeah and so drum machines to condense a long history drum machine when you get a drum machine then after you become familiar with that then you're the guy that can work gadgets and then (laughs) when when sequencers and computer sequencers and synthesizers come on the scene then that's kind of a natural transition yeah and so I had played key, you know, I played piano a little bit as a as a young kid and my mom played piano and we always had pianos in the house. And so that led to synthesizers and synthesizer plus drum machine equals sequencers. And pretty <laughs> soon you're the pretty soon I was the guy who in whatever band I was in knew how to work that kind of junk. Yeah. And so always the guy with the with the mpc 60 drum machine or the sampler or whatever and that kind of sucked me down the that road and i actually studied electronic music in college from 81 to 85 which fortuitously was just as uh midi came on the scene and when the sort of music technology revolution really started yeah prior to that you had to have these expensive uh, exotic devices like the Fairlight and the Synclavier. Yeah. And just as I was in college studying electronic music, all of a sudden you could, you know, have a cheap personal computer and connect it to a bunch of synthesizers and drum machines. And so it was, a, it was great timing that I was studying that and learning that in college when that, techno- that enabling technology came around. Cool. Yeah. And then then how did you end up getting in because you were uh, with Nine Inch Nails for a number of years? How did you end up getting involved with that? Well, I had actually my first real job doing music uh, after college was actually working for a television composer in New York City where where I lived. And I worked with him for, you know, alongside my my night jobs of being in bad bands and making bad albums and doing bad tours uh, <laughs> was working for a TV composer and uh, as the pro as the programmer and drum programmer and sound designer and occasional ghostwriter on uh, the original television series of the Equalizer. Oh, cool! Yeah, <laughs> which he had been hired to do the final season of. Yeah, and so. Right off the bat, before I really got moving in the record industry, I was uh, working as the third man on these TV scores. So I kind of had, I, I you know, I already had my, my my feet in the water and was learning the workflow and the terminology and the reality of doing weekly, you know, doing 40 minutes of score for a weekly uh, TV series. Yeah. And working with that guy actually brought me out to Los Angeles where uh, – I reunited with some old college friends who were acting as producers on a Nine Inch Nails video clip. Right. Uh, 
and they needed sound effects. This was for the original music video clip to the Nine Inch Nails song Happiness and Slavery, which had this robot chair torture device that was <laughs> you, that uh, famous performance artist Bob Flanagan was was seated in. And right. this this torture chair actually in the video chewed him up and spat him out and they needed the sound effects of this robot chair torture device. And so one of the, one of my old college friends said to Trent, Hey, I've got a, instead of us booking time in an audio sweetening facility to add these sound effects, I got a buddy who's the whiz with this kind of stuff. Maybe he can come over to your studio and we can just knock it out here, which is what I did. And I sort of never left. Uh, (laughs) Trent had budgeted like two days to do these sound effects and stuff because he had all the equipment we needed. They just needed some new sounds and someone who knew how to do that kind of stuff. So I showed up with a with an optical disc full of sound effects of jackhammers and dentist drills and like that. <laughs> and we used Trent's uh, studio and his equipment to do that sound effect overlay. And we, of course, wound up doing it in about two hours out of the two days that we had allocated. And uh, then we spent the rest of the, the day screwing around in the studio and playing video games and stuff. And I <laughs> never left. And, uh, you know, at the end of that two days, Trent said, hey, I've got this band I'm producing called Marilyn Manson, and I got all this other stuff I need to be doing, but I need to replace the drums on their on this live recording of this band with sample drums to beef it up and make it more rugged sounding. Yeah. Why don't you sit here in my studio while I go off and do something else for two weeks and see if you can polish up and rugged up these these drums for Manson's first record. So that was the first thing I ever did with with uh, Reznor. And then I, I kind of never left. I wound up <laughs> going on the road with the band, uh, operating and setting up the portable studio that he would set up in hotel rooms whenever there was a few days off. Yeah. And eventually the keyboard, the, the prior keyboard player, James Woolley, had kind of had enough. So I, I slotted myself in there and actually had never played keyboards in a band before. I was always the drummer or the the synth guy, but I'd never just stood on stage with a keyboard. Yeah. And so my first actual performance in front of an audience playing keyboards was something like 22,500 people on, on a New Year's <laughs> Eve at <laughs> You know, a huge Nine Inch Nails show, and so I, I they swapped out the old keyboard player and swapped me in in the middle of of one of their biggest tours. So <laughs> it was a it was a definitely a, a bit of a nail biting moment for a minute, but um, yeah. it worked out. Yeah, that's that's a sort of um, tri- trial by fire, really. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you, you, you then, you then introduced the theremin to, to those guys as well, um, which is a ballsy move, <laughs> given that the theremin is, is not supposed to be the easiest thing in the world to play. Yeah, it's not, uh, it's, it certainly was not the, you know, typical thera- you know, accuracy on a theremin requires, uh, standing very still and moving your hands in very small motions and very with very much precision, which was not the hallmark of a Nine Inch Nails. I was going to say though. basically anywhere but a Nine Inch Nails yeah, gig, exactly. probably. And you know, I was, it wasn't like I was playing, uh, you know, string quartets on the thing. No, uh, it was definitely uh, just a way to, to get uh, as aggressive and screaming a texture as possible. And we only used it on three or four songs, but it was a, a great little, uh, uh, you know, it was a, a great accent to the the uh keyboard based stuff which all the other synth work was at that time in yeah the band. yeah no that's that's cool it's always nice to hear a theremin or something <laughs> absolutely <laughs> yeah so you'd you'd started off in tv ended up kind of getting swept along into into sort of nine inch nails and then kind of around 2000 ended up kind of switching back to going to do composing again yeah cool Okay, what was what what inspired the switch back? Was it just things were slowing down, or 
Well, you know, when I left Nine Inch Nails, which was right around this time of year, right around June 2001, um, and we had been baiting at the, you know, Nine Inch Nails was based in New Orleans for many years. Right. And uh, that's so that's where I lived for like seven years. And uh, and when I left the band, I came back to Los Angeles and was going to just kind of pick up where I left off in the record industry. And I produced uh, a bunch of stuff, uh, finished an album with uh, Paige Hamilton from the band Helmet uh, with a bunch of tracks that we had written together while I was in New Orleans. And, you know, this was right around the time that that Napster and LimeWire were right. coming on the scene. Yeah. And big changes were afoot. And, you know, what I had always done in the record industry was I was the, the studio lab rat. I was never the – even though I was in the Nine Inch Nails live band, I, that was not what drew me to making records. What I liked was long nights in the studio experimenting with sound. Um, and when the, the, you know, the landscape of record production that I came up in was very much uh, – the era of the the big racks of gear and the big consoles and the big studios and a bunch of people laboring at great expense and burning through lots of money <laughs> and time to make elaborate studio records. And yeah. that landscape, it was kind of obvious that that was fixing to change. Yeah. Uh, and obviously with advances in musical technology and the change in the distribution landscape of – you know, that streaming and downloading was just coming onto the scene. It was obvious that something, that big changes were, were about to happen. Yeah. Um, and so I was, and I was seeing that already affect the schedules and budgets that were available to make the kind of records that I liked. Um, budgets were shrinking and we were doing a lot more work at home studios. You know, you'd go and track the drums and guitars at a big studio. Then you'd come home and do a lot of work in Pro Tools for a month or two yeah. and then go back to another studio to mix. So I could see that kind of the, the world that the things that attracted me to uh, making records and the landscape of all that was changing in a big way. And right about that same time, in about 2002, I actually reunited with the composer who had hired me so many years before in New York. And he kind of said, hey, there's a few TV shows kicking around. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you'd be up for it. And so the two of us reunited and uh, scored 23 episodes of this show called Fast Lane that was on Fox for one season. And so cool. that kind of got me back, uh, back into that world. And then the next autumn after that show, you know, it only ran for one season. But the next autumn, I got another show and then the Saw movie. And all of a sudden I was back in it with both feet. So, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, that that's that's like crazy sort of um, just ending up back doing that TV stuff yeah. after. <laughs> um, and I quite, you know, it's the, the doing scoring either for TV or movies uh, as opposed to making records kind of more suits my tendencies to being a, a, a late night lab rat. Yeah, you know? that's that's really the maximum amount of time spent just fiddling in the laboratory as opposed to, uh, you know, sitting on a tour bus and sitting backstage at the Enormo Dome or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you, um, uh, you should say you did the Saw movies. Um, you did, uh, you did, um, American Horror Story. You wrote, wrote the theme for American Horror Story as well, didn't you? Yeah. Um, co-wrote that. Um, so you, you've kind of, um, dipped into into a sort of horror background. Was that a conscious thing? Was that something that, that or was that just happened to be what came along and, and suited your sound? Well, I think it's partly that it my tendencies towards music and sound design and musical sound design are always have always leaned towards dark 
and aggressive tonalities and melodies. Yeah. And that certainly seems more uh, – it, it seems that my tendencies in that department are more suited towards horror-type stuff than, f- for instance, you know, period dramas. Like, <laughs> yeah. I don't think I'd be the right choice for uh, Downton Abbey or something like that. <laughs> no, quite, quite. It'd be interesting, but. <laughs> and I think, you know, that's what it's certainly doing movies like the Saw movies and stuff like that is uh, far more compatible with my natural inclinations towards haunting and dark sounds than most other things. I mean, one of my one of my earliest memories of being amazed at music was uh, the music in uh, Stanley Kubrick's 2001 Space Odyssey with the Georgi Ligeti and the Penderecki pieces, which are just this otherworldly, terrifying sound that as a child, my dad took me to to see that movie. And that was one of the first times that I was just astonished by the, this otherworldly, you know, almost science fiction music almost, even though that's very, those pieces are very acoustic, you know, they're all choir and strings and so forth. Uh, That was one of those musical experiences that uh, stuck with me and was a a tendency that I, I still am. I still gravitate towards that type of thing. Those atonal and clustery kind of uh, sounds that, just uh, really lend themselves very well to horror type movies and to anything dark and scary. Yeah, which which is of course where you've kind of gone with uh, with the way we pine stuff as well. I mean, I, I know that that um, a lot of the soundtrack to that is is the kind of keeping the tension and and you know putting the the watcher on edge somewhat. I think exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, how did, how did you come to, to Wayward Pines? Well, that was, um, you know, they, uh, I believe they had already hired a composer and gotten started on the pilot episode and kind of weren't getting what they wanted to get. And, uh, so they brought me in to just here, take three scenes and see if you can, uh, see what your take would be on this. And I, and what I wound up doing was, and this is something I, even though my tendency is towards, uh, atonal chaotic mess, uh, (laughs) what I tried to do and what I naturally, what my natural reflex is, is to try to inject some small amount of continuous musical theme throughout. Um, and, so I had this, these very subtle and light chord progressions and melodic figures that I used in these uh, three audition scenes. And the fact that that kind of helped to link them together and to have some underlying uh, melodic theme, even when the cues, even when the, 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 the scenes were very sort of spacey and ambient, I think that was what made the the producers of the show go there. That's what we need here is some continuity in the, despite the fact that the music's going to be all over the place and scary and dark and washy and ambient. It doesn't, they, they, they responded well to having that, that sort of thread of continuity through it. And that's something that as we, uh, as I, did the uh, main title theme for Wayward Pines, there's a, there's a similar kind of thing happening. There's a tiny little four note phrase that happens on a, like on a high female vocal. Yeah. And that little nugget of music became something that the, the producers were like, that's, we'll call that little tiny musical molecule. We'll call that the Wayward Pines theme. And whenever Throughout the series, whenever we want to call out something uh, on the screen as being part of the underlying conspiracy, we'll refer to that little musical motif. And so, and it became very useful and simple to do that in the context of all the different score music I was doing, that I could easily just deploy this tiny little da-da-da-da sound. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
uh, this little melody and play it with a variety of different sounds and have that kind of continuity throughout. And that was not entirely, it was more reflex than a planned attack because that's just kind of the way my mind works when I'm thinking about yeah. score music. But uh, that was, that seemed to be something that they responded to and thought that the series needed and uh, it worked. Cool. Um, what sort of intro, um, in, instruments are you, are you using um, to to create the sound for that? Because um, I mean, are you you talking about uh, using that that uh, little kind of music device? I, it, I mean, it obviously changes depending what you're playing on it as well. So, uh, what, what sort of instruments are you uh, are you using for for creating the sound for Wayward Pines? Well, there's a the whole show is sort of. You know, in the, in the first few episodes, you're where the audience isn't really sure if uh, Matt Dillon's character is maybe he's still, you know, he suffered a traumatic brain injury in this car wreck. And yeah. We're not sure if maybe he's still lying in bed in the hospital in a coma and imagining all this. Yeah. And, and he's also kind of unsteady on his feet as he recovers from this injury and he's wandering around this strange little town where everybody's in on something and we don't quite know what they're all everybody's a party to some underlying conspiracy and neither the audience nor Matt Dillon's character knows what it is so he's kind of staggering around this town trying to get to the bottom of what's going on and so I knew that the 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 sounds making up the score needed to be kind of unsteady on their feet, just like he was. Yeah. Um, sort of looking at it all from his point of view. And so a lot of the sounds that I used were um, these bowed metal sounds, where I have these devices, uh, these instruments like the water phone, which is uh, sort of a classic horror movie instrument that you actually f fill. It has these brass rods welded to a pair of, pie pans if you can imagine oh yeah yeah i've just looked one up <laughs> usually fill it it's usually used you can fill it with water and then you using a violin bow you stroke those metal rods and then wiggle the thing around and as the water sloshes around inside it it creates these warbling modulating kind of tones that are very acoustic in footprint. I mean, it's not an electronic instrument at yeah, all. Yeah. And it sounds completely organic and alive. And so I have a couple of those, and I used a lot of that, but without the water in it, which makes it not so wobbly in pitch. And it's not, it doesn't, it no longer sounds like the classic horror phone, horror movie water phone sound if you don't have the water in it. Okay. But what it does do is it sounds very unsteady and uh, tenuous. And when you're playing it with a bow, you can play it in a very uh, – uh, almost a staggering fashion. In fact, I have one here. Uh, <laughs> let me grab my violin bow. Sure. Um, and you can get these type of sounds. Oh, wow. Sort of, it doesn't sound like it's working correctly yeah. most of the time when you're playing a waterphone. And so I used... A lot of waterphone and also a lot of sounds of a similar nature played with a bow in an unsteady fashion. There was also a, an instrument called a, a guzang, which is a Chinese instrument similar to a Japanese koto. Um, and that is typically played by experts in traditional Chinese music, yeah. which I am not. But when, <laughs> when you play it with a guitar pick, or a violin bow, it also, like a waterphone, has a very acoustic and organic footprint, but by playing it with it's not with its intent in its intended fashion, becomes uh, unsteady on its feet and but still has an un, a non-electronic 
sound. And that was one thing that, you know, the world of Wayward Pines is very uh, organic. It's there at this small town in the, in the, in the mountains. It's not, there's nothing high tech about the first half of the series. Yeah. I wanted to start the, the, the musical footprint of the thing with these kind of unsteady, but completely organic sounds. And then as the series progresses and more is revealed, then things get a little more high tech and epic in scale. So then I could introduce a whole other categories of sounds, but I wanted to establish that, that organic and kind of staggering limping quality to the, to the score and have that established and then move on from there. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, it creates a really kind of interesting, uh, uh, different kind of sound. It's, it's interesting you talking about kind of using, you know, uh, bows and, and picks and, and sort of playing things the way that they're not supposed to be played. Cause I was, I was talking to, uh, Dan Litch just last week. Who's, who's, uh, one of his tricks is playing, um, the glockenspiel with a bow. Yeah. Um, uh, which Very creates, similar. Does yeah. it a lot? Does it for Dexter, which you know ha- creates that that kind of odd, weird sound to it. So yeah. it's it's works quite well as that sort of slightly off, ed- you know, on edge, nervy kind of sound it creates. Exactly, and you know, it's very. It's I, despite my background and heritage with lots of synthesizers and yeah. so forth in in Nine Inch Nails and in other like industrial music productions I've been involved in. It's a, a lot of times in the scoring world that to me doesn't sound quite right. And that's, and it's also, I mean, it's been 30 years now I've been moving the dang filter knob on a synthesizer. <laughs> and after a while, you get to the point where you want to try something new and that's, that you're not necessarily an expert at. Yeah. And certainly playing a Chinese guzang or a waterphone is something I'm not an expert at. And <laughs> that was definitely, that, that definitely represents more of a challenge and more of a process of discovery and experimentation than just breaking out the army of synthesizers. Yeah. Yeah. I, I always think given this, there's a whole bunch of, of, uh, you guys up in that one little area. You, I mean, I'm assuming you, you, you should sort of get together and, and just trade instruments every so often. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, and I, you know that's something I, I uh, whenever we do our little bi-monthly get-togethers, you know, we usually rotate around and go to different folks' place, and uh, it's always my everybody's always peeking under the uh, in the closet of whoever <laughs> studio we're at. You're like, what interesting toys do you? Have? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. Um, I know from uh, talking to Nate that he's got things made out of bone and stuff, and uh, mm. uh, and uh, he was having a he was having a big um, organ like um, for, which he got from one of the studios installed and that sort of stuff. So uh, yeah, there's uh, there's all sorts of weird and wonderful things floating around up there. I'm sure. <laughs> Absolutely, us mountain folk, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Got to do something with those uh, with the bones of those bodies. Uh huh. <laughs> Um, couple of, uh, couple of final questions cause, uh, we've been up for like 40 minutes. So, um, um, one of the things that, that we always ask people is, uh, cause we cover a lot of TV shows on the website. So, uh, one of the things we always ask is, are, are there any shows out there that, uh, you're watching or have got, had a chance to watch that you really love or anything that you really love the music on? Let's see here. Um, some of my, f- I mean, some of the stuff that uh, is my favorite, some of my favorite shows um, is, you know, and and also to which I like the music is, uh, of course, being a fan of Cliff Martinez, that made me want to watch The Nick. Yeah. Uh, which his approach to the score was not at all what I expected. I mean, because it's a period drama, you know, in many ways, the yeah. last you'd expect is sort of synthesizers and electronics um, yeah it's a, it's a crazy store uh, score for the uh for, for the period you it really it really is and somehow he makes it work and yeah. i think you know because he's such a minimalist and that the 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 cues are so uh so sparse i think that kind of allows those tonalities to work and i think it's a daring move on his part and on soderbergh's part and everything and 
it's a, I think I got really sucked into that show, uh, you know, and that was one that, uh, wasn't what I thought it would be, but, uh, has definitely drawn me in. Yeah. And, you know, I, uh, it's funny. Most of the stuff that I get sucked into, uh, I mean, <clears throat> so many of the things that I've, that I've binge watched are things that have such minimal amounts of score. I mean, <laughs> that you're not the first composer to say that, that, that it's, it's weird. <laughs> it, it, I mean, not to, not to say that, you know, not to say that I don't like shows with tons of score on them, but like, of course the wire, no yeah. score whatsoever, you know, yeah. the Sopranos, no score whatsoever. Yeah. Um, and that's, not why I like the show necessarily, but it's, so it's an interesting choice. I probably shouldn't say that how much I like those shows for fear of uh, <laughs> reinforcing some trend where music, where shows <laughs> don't have score. But um, I tend to like things that are, that are as minimal as possible, even though the kind of projects I get involved in seem to not be like that. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. on Favorite Pines, we, we, we we cover the thing with music, even when the music is very thin and sparse at times. There's a lot of it. Yeah. But you know, one of my favorite, I keep, I always come back to uh, one of my favorite movies uh, and scores, which is a, a a little known movie that kind of came and went without much fuss a few years ago. But like the Nick, uh, another Clive Owen uh, amazing performance in this movie called The International. Okay. Yes, I have vaguely heard of that, I think. And it's, you know, it's it's kind of my favorite sort of movie. It's a it's a international espionage yeah. thriller kind of movie, not cars exploding kind of movie. Yeah. Um, and the music was by uh uh Reinhold Heil and Johnny Climac and the director Tom Tickwer. And the three of them had worked together on Run Lola Run and other movies that Tom had directed and just had a great, not over the top, but very tense score that at times was, you know, one of the, there's a couple suspense cues in that movie, which are just, the entire cue will be a timpani and tapping on a piano, you know, just very <laughs> few elements, but put together so tastefully that it just works so well as a as a tension d builder. And uh, so and I keep coming back to, to that one as uh, one of my all time favorites of, wow, these guys really did it right. You know? Yeah. 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 I, I'll have to go and, uh, and look that out because I remember seeing it advertised at the time and, yeah. and just it, yeah like you say kind of passed a lot of people by i think so i might go and find and, that you out. know it's one of those movies that doesn't set the world on fire and it sort of can't it's an you know it's espionage and it's in, you know international banking intrigue yeah. so it's not the <laughs> next uh, marvel superhero movie by any means but no. it's a very very well done and beautifully photographed and expertly directed and wonderful acting from Naomi Watts and Clive Owen and just in a great supporting cast. And just, you know, it kind of fits in this sort of category that Cliff Martinez seems to do a lot of uh, movies in that world. Uh, there was uh, one, uh, you know, there's a few movies of that nature that Cliff has scored that have a similar approach, minimal, but tense. Yeah. And uh, those seem to be the, Although, I, I, you know, a lot of times I say, that's the kind of movie I'd like to be scoring. If I was sat down in front of it, I'd probably do completely the wrong thing. And <laughs> not with such a minimal and expertly deployed score as these guys do, but those seem to be the kind of things I'm attracted to as a viewer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, uh, what, what's, uh, what's next for you? Um, are you, have you got more of uh, Wayward Pines to do, or or are you onto something else now? Well, we're in the Wayward Pines universe. Uh, you know, this initial batch is a ten-episode run that I believe uh, covers the first of three books. Okay. Uh, so there is perhaps the option to extend that run, although that hasn't started yet. But, um, you know, when we first started with Wayward Pines, it was originally going to be airing on FX on Fox's cable channel. Yeah. And 
then uh, it was moved to normal Fox network. So instead of being buried in the uh, high channel numbers on cable, it was now on channel 11. Right. So, uh, and it's apparently been doing fairly well. So there's, we're holding out hope that uh, they'll find a way to light up books two and three. Yeah. Uh, and uh, to, to make a longer run out of it because they do leave that door very much open as the as this initial 10 episode run ends and uh i think that would be really cool um and coming up next i mean this next um month i'll be the only thing on my schedule for for uh the next couple weeks is i'll be doing my first ever panel at the san diego comic-con oh cool should be interesting to say the least, because I gather that's one of the biggest of the con. It, it is the biggest, yeah. And um, so I'm excited to see uh, some wild costumes and other yeah. <laughs> other exhibits of uh, of movie fandom gone awry. Yeah, <laughs> very much my sort of thing. That should be good fun. There's there's going to be yeah. a lot of DC stuff there this year, so I'm uh, you know I'm looking forward to that. I mean, it's amazing the the level. I certainly could not have predicted the 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 heights that uh, the 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 Marvel and DC universe would would reach in uh, the movie world. I mean, after the sort of bad decade of adaptations of that kind of stuff through the '90s, uh, you know, they've really turned it around, and now we're seeing, you know, the all the Marvel and DC properties. Yeah dealt with in such a grown-up fashion that yeah. these aren't, you know, these aren't kiddie movies no, anymore. No, Yeah, I mean, I don't know whether you caught uh, Daredevil on Netflix, but that that's about as far away from being four kids as, as a, a show yeah. possibly could be. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, uh, and, and that's just superbly well done. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, uh, uh, I'm looking forward to the second season of that coming back. So the, there is so much... Uh, good comic book stuff out there these days. Yeah, it's really uh, amazing that they've. I mean, because you know, through the nineties, uh, I love me some George Clooney, but not as Batman. No, 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 <laughs> that was not a good film. <laughs> and it's just amazing that the, that they've been able to pull the, you know, pu pull it out of the out of the fire and really turn yeah. those properties into such amazingly well handled situations yeah yeah no i'm i'm looking forward to the uh to the batman versus superman and uh because all that sort of stuff because dc dc i've got these huge presents this year because marvel aren't going um apparently so uh so they, they if you can if you're out there it might be worth catching and you're into your comic books it's worth catching some of the dc stuff stuff i'm sure so <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, we've been on for like 50 minutes, so I'll, I, I shall let you get back to your day. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you, um, so I hope everything goes great with the show, um, and I uh, hope you uh, you come back for another season, that would be awesome. Uh, yeah. And uh, I hopefully talk to you soon. Excellent. Well, uh, you know, get, look us up when you're when you're over here in Los Angeles. Uh, I will. Uh, I have to take a drive through to Panga. Like. <laughs> yeah. It seems like you've got a few friends in the neighborhood. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. There are quite a number of people up there I seem to know now. So. Um, all right, cool. Uh, have a great day, and I will uh, talk to you again soon. Great. Thanks, Cheers. David. Cheers. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.